So hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today I'm sitting here with uh, Mike Newman, who's going to talk about the structural systems mock exam that we issued. Um, Mike's going to review different types of questions and some of the strategies for how to answer those questions. We were just talking about it earlier, and there's actually quite a few different types of questions from sort of structural detailing questions to questions about code um, to maybe the more kind of common and obvious questions about loads and so on. So Mike's going to get into those different types of questions and, and help you um, kind of with some strategies for how to, how to answer them. Uh, but before we get going here, if you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, uh, where we're going to feature recently li licensed architects um, and their strategies for passing the ARE, let's see here, you can visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast. And you can see here uh, where the register now button is, you can go ahead and uh, register for that. And uh, you know, just like all of our other uh, ARE Live broadcasts, you'll be able to uh, ask questions to the group of folks who pass the ARE uh, as well as Mike. Um, and if you don't know Mike, he's an assistant adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he's the instructor for Black Spectacles online AIA ARE prep curriculum. Uh, if you haven't um, already checked out our AIA ARE prep curriculum, head over to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free tutorials from the courses. And today we have a special uh, Black Spectacles promo code to share, so make sure you stick around until the end of today's episode. Uh, but first, let me go ahead and hand it over to Mike. Thanks, Mark. Uh, yes, as you say, uh, there are many, many, many possible questions that could show up on this exam, like all of the exams. Um, and that range makes it a little uh, daunting and uh, complicated to study for. Uh, but hopefully what we're going to do today is just do a, a quick little breeze across the top of a few different of these topics uh, and allow us to sort of see the kind of range and the kind of types of questions. And I'll talk a little bit about the, uh, the ways that uh, NCARB writes their questions and the sort of type of uh, questions that uh, that come up on, uh, on this, like why they write them the way they do and kind of what the point of, uh, of the, the questions are so that we can really sort of jump into it. One of the things you mentioned, Mark, was uh, um, the code questions that show up. So not just detailing, not just loads, uh, but also a whole range of other possibilities, including uh, code questions. That's one that I was a little surprised by recently as I was going through a lot of the new documentation from NCARB uh, in the recent uh, materials that they've sent out. They uh, now focus much more on code questions. Not that it's a huge number of them, but that uh, just more than they had been focusing before. So things about IBC and like uh, load reductions for wind loads and um, th those kinds of topics. So that's something that we're not going to talk about today, really. But I would recommend uh, that probably doesn't show up as much on a lot of the guidebooks uh, as it will soon, because it's clearly a, a big focus on the NCARB uh, front. So given that, uh, I think we should just jump right in. All right, so the uh, little mini mock exam that we sent out uh, starts with uh, a fairly simple, straightforward uh, uh, statics question. And the question is, number one, uh, neglecting the weight of the beam, what are the values for both of the reactions of R1 and R2? So the key first thing to remember here, just remembering back to your uh, uh, early days is um, the uh, idea that the sum of the forces equals zero. So the sum of the horizontal forces 
equals zero, uh, and the sum of the uh, vertical forces equals zero, and most importantly, probably, uh, is that the sum of the moments equals zeros. Uh, remember, a moment is a force times a diagram. Um, so uh, remembering that, um, we don't really have, on this particular example, any horizontal forces. So we're going to actually not, uh, uh, not worry about that, uh, that one right now. What we will focus on, though, is on the vertical and the moments. All right, once Mark's out of my way here. All right. Um, so uh, first thing we need to figure out is what are our loads uh, going vertically, um, in, in this sense, down, uh, so that we can then figure out what our loads are going vertically up. Uh, and the best way that we're going to do that is by actually figuring out what one of those loads is uh, by doing moments around one of the reaction points. We could actually do moments around either of them. Um, the main thing is we have to get rid of one of them. Uh, and the reason that we can get rid of one is because if moment is a force times a distance, if the distance is zero, it just goes away. And so that allows us to have only one uh, uh, variable that we don't know. So if we do it, say, around this point at R2, uh, that means the only one that will be left will be R1. And so we can do the calculation very simply and easily. Uh, so if the sum of the moments, so have to equal to zero for it to be uh, in equilibrium, i.e. it's not going to uh, fly away, uh, float off, or bury itself into the ground. So it's in equilibrium, we're assuming. Uh, so then we start to think about, all right, the sum of the moments around this point. The moments, again, are a force times a distance. So here's a force, the 2K. Uh, so the distance is 5 feet. I'm going to call that force, because it's going down, it's creating around this in a clockwise motion, I'm just going to call that a positive force. So that's going to be 2k times 5 feet. And then the next one I'm going to get to is going to be this 4k, and that's going the opposite way. So I'm going to call that a minus force, so that's going to be 4k times Again, five feet. And then the next force we have is this uh, uniform load. And that uniform load at uh, 200 pounds uh, per foot, uh, per square foot, uh, is that we could deal with it as a uniform load, but it's, life is going to be just much, much easier if we translate that into a single point load. So that uh, 200 pounds uh, per square foot square foot is going to be, uh, for in terms of the linear foot of this uh, beam, is going to be 10 times that 200. Uh, so we get uh, a 2,000 pound load. Uh, but that 2,000 pound load, everything else we're doing is in Ks, in kips. So we're actually going to switch that. Kips is 1,000 pounds. So that's going to become 2K. So then we have another one that, again, is going in the negative direction, going counterclockwise. And so we have. 2 kip times, and this case is going to be uh, uh, 5 feet plus 5 feet plus the middle of this 10 foot, so another 5, so that's going to be 15 feet. Uh, and then the last uh, force we have to deal with is then the R1. Uh, and so the R1 is going in, again, presumably, the positive uh, direction. So I'm going to say plus 
R1 and its distance is going to be 20 feet away. Getting a little close to the edge there. Uh, so if we start to kind of do some quick uh, uh, things, that we're going to subtract R1 times 20 to both sides. Uh, so we get uh, minus R1 uh, times 20 uh, is 20 feet is equal to um, 10 kip feet uh, minus 20 kip feet uh, minus 30 kip feet. Uh, so that becomes minus R1 uh, times 20, uh, which is equal to uh, uh, minus, excuse me, sorry about that, minus 40 kip feet. Since they're both minus, we can make them both positives. So now it's plus on both sides. So R1 times 20 is equal to 40 kip feet. Uh, therefore, the R1 is equal to 2 kips. We've divided it by 20 feet, so that gets rid of the feet on the kip feet. So we have R1 is equal to 2 kips. So that means this reaction force here is 2 kips. Uh, obviously, if we just do a quick sum of the reactions, uh, we can also, using the uh, vertical forces, uh, we can say if there's uh, uh, 2 kips coming down as part of this uh, uniform load, plus the 4 kips coming down in this point load, uh, and then another two kips over here, that's going to total to eight kips. And we happen to know that this R1, because we've just figured it out, is two kips going back up. That means the R2 must be six kips. So there you are, sort of a long way around. It's actually pretty fast once you uh, start to do it uh, quickly uh, on your own. You don't have to necessarily try to line everything up. Uh, and that is a, a pretty likely kind of question. You won't get a huge number of these but you'll probably get one or two uh, that sort of force you to kind of do some fairly simple statics just to kind of show that you can, you can manipulate these things quickly and easily. Okay, let's uh, jump on from there. So here's a, another type of question that uh, they'll sometimes do. Uh, check all that apply about sump tests. Slump tests, not sump, slump tests. Uh, okay, shows the strength of the concrete at 28 days, shows the admixtures in the mix, shows the workability of the concrete, shows the amount of camber in a concrete beam, shows the strength of the concrete, shows the bearing capacity below the footing, gives an indication of the final finish of the concrete. So there's a couple of these that are actually the, the right answers, and then there's a couple that are sort of vaguely close that you could kind of get fooled by. Uh, but in general, uh, this is, there's a, there are two very clearly correct answers in this. So I'm going to jump ahead here a little bit. So those two correct answers are going to be uh, that it's going to show the workability of the concrete and it's going to show the strength of the concrete. A couple of the other ones that you, could, you might start to think would be shows the admixtures in the concrete. Uh, and the reason that you would think that is that there's a very strong relationship between a number of the admixtures. Admixtures are those things, uh, those like uh, chemicals and, and uh, you know, fly ash and a whole bunch of other things that get added into a typical concrete mix. Uh, and they have a purpose. They have some sort of need that, that, they're, uh, that they're doing. So they might make uh, the concrete reduce heat in, when it's going through its heat of hydration, which is the chemical bonding process between the water 
and the cement, Portland cement. Or it might make uh, the concrete more workable, um, make it easier to fit around the formwork, or it might be a pigment of some kind. Uh, so there's a whole series of different types of admixtures that can be added in, and a number of them work on making it more workable. But the basic way that we manage the sort of workability uh, is the water to cement ratio. And the less water I have, the stiffer the concrete is going to be, the more water I have, the more it's going to be like a soup, right? So this water to cement ratio is kind of the stiff versus soup ratio, if you will. Uh, and if, I, uh, am, if I'm on a situation, on a site, and I'm trying to get the, the concrete to be placed very easily around a lot of different formwork and, and rebar and all the things, I'm going to, as a worker, I'm going to want it to be soupy. I'm going to want it to, to be able to get you know, easily around all of those things without having to uh, uh, leave air gaps and pockets in various locations. Uh, but if I'm the engineer, I'm going to be very nervous about making it so soupy because there's a huge relationship between extra water and making it weak. Uh, the more water we have that is in there, uh, it just creates uh, uh, openings and uh, potential for cracks and a whole series of different reasons why it actually makes it weaker. So what I really want is just the exact right amount of uh, water to cement to make the ratio, uh, make it um, work as a, as a concrete, uh, to make it nice and durable and strong. Uh, but as a worker, I need it to be soupy so that I can get it to move. And so that's the, the thing that the slump test does. The slump test is this little device, uh, which is this sort of cone shape uh, that's shown up here. And you fill that uh, cone upside down with uh, concrete and you turn it in this way, uh, sort of fling it onto the table, you pull the cone back off, and you get this sort of lump of concrete left. And the amount that it slumps down is its slump, and that's allowing us to say that this is a stiff or a not stiff. You might have a slump of zero, at which point it'd be very hard to get it to fit around the rebar. You might have a slump of, say, eight, which means it's essentially a uh, soup and it's not going to be uh, uh, useful at all. It's not going to be strong at all. Uh, so usually you're looking for a slump of about three, um, sometimes two, sometimes four. Uh, kind of in that slumps a little bit, allows you to make it workable. Uh, so this idea of showing the workability is absolutely the point of the slump test. So you're sort of seeing the workability, but you're also seeing it in relationship to the strength. Some of these other ones, the concrete uh, shows the strength of concrete at 20 days. Uh, that's actually uh, something that you do with a cylinder test, which would be this one, where they make a bunch of cylinders. They're about a foot tall, about six inches in diameter, and you just make them out of every uh, truck batch that comes to the site and then you smash them at various points. And the typical one you would do is at 28 days uh, because uh, that's the, when it's sort of assumed that concrete is at essentially its uh, sort of long-term um, uh, strength capacity. Earlier than that, it's still green, and so it's not quite as, uh, as uh, strong. So you do it at 28 days, but um, that's for a cylinder test, and that's a very different thing. It doesn't have anything to do with workability. It's really just the, the, the end result of the concrete uh, that came. Uh, as I said, the admixtures, it's sort of a possible answer. 
answer. It's just that uh, with the way that it's uh, worded here, it doesn't give us that sense. It's really too hard to know what admixtures would be uh, in the mix. So the only two that really make sense are workability and strength. Uh, camber and a beam is when uh, you have a beam that's built with a specific crown upward uh, so that when it gets loaded down, uh, that load will get it to essentially be flat uh, by the time it's loaded. That's that idea of camber. Uh, and slump doesn't really have anything to do with uh, the bearing capacity of the, um, of the footing. Uh, and it doesn't uh, uh, really affect, it sort of affects the finish of the concrete in that you see more cracking and some of those things, but it wouldn't be a, a seminal part of the slump. That wouldn't be why you would use a slump uh, to uh, test in the, in the field. All right, let's go to number three. So far, our, uh, our guest answerers here are tracking. Cool. So we have uh, lots of correct answers so far. All right. Uh, so number three, I would use a mat or raft foundation when I expect there to be, uh, and the answer to this one is, um, there's a couple different ways you could answer it, but the one that I was imagining is uh, differential settlement. Uh, so what that's referring to is in a situation where uh, if either I just can't be 100% sure about the soils that are around me uh, or there's uh, really good soils but they're way down and it's just not worth it to go down and find those really good soils, uh, this is possibility. What I do instead is I make a huge big thick raft of concrete. Uh, so this might be, you know, 24 inches thick. Uh, it could even be thicker than that. It's probably not less than about 18 inches if you're going to call it a raft. Uh, so I have this very big, thick uh, chunk of concrete. It's very, very heavy, uh, but it's also loaded with rebar going in both directions. And the whole point of this is, if you imagine, this is sort of an odd drawing here, but imagine we're looking up underneath the raft. And let's say there's sort of a bad zone, you know, here, which is sort of corresponding to this soil. Like it's kind of lousy soil there. And there's another bad zone there, and maybe there's another bad zone there. You know, if those areas uh, are just uh, slightly less, uh, have less capacity in their soil, um, well, it doesn't really matter because I'm getting the bearing capacity out of all these other zones of the, the raft. And so those other zones of the raft will just bridge across, the raft becomes a beam across those bad uh, sections of soil. Uh, so you're essentially making the entire slab a thick beam that goes, uh, spans across any of the bad soils that you're not even sure where they're going to be. Uh, so this sort of odd, uh, sort of you dig down and you, you're just not sure about it or uh, whatever, then you put this big thing in and then you're going to put all your foundations and everything else uh, right on top of that. And it's going to spread the load and that way you're spreading the load very, very wide. Every aspect of the floor is actually part of the foundation. It's not just where the strip footings are, the whole thing. And because you're spreading it all out, you can sit on some pretty crappy uh, soils that way. Uh, one of the things that often comes into play here is if I have, uh, you know, many feet down bedrock or something that's way down there, there's always this kind of uh, a decision between am I uh, going to do a, a caisson foundation that's going to reach all the way down to that bedrock uh, or is it better off uh, doing 
uh, one of these rafts. And it would be a cost foundation, like the caissons are very expensive. You have to go down deep usually uh, with those. So if you're reaching down 60, 70, 80 feet, is it worth doing that to get to the bedrock or is it worth doing one of these big rafts? They're very expensive to do the rafts uh, and they're hard to uh, manipulate in with uh, plumbing and other things. It, it, just, it just creates a, a more complicated set of relationships than the typical. Uh, so people, the contractors don't generally like to do them very much. Um, but in the situation, if, it's, uh, if I'm gonna float a raft at five feet below grade, or I'm gonna have to reach 110 feet down for uh, caisson, I'm probably gonna prefer to float the raft. So that's what this is all about. Uh, when you see those, when you see that term mat or raft, that's what they're talking about. And this is one of those interesting examples. I'll mention a couple of these along the way. Uh, you actually don't see these all that often. Uh, you know, I've, I've done a couple, uh, people I've worked with have, have done a few. Um, so they show up every once in a while. And in certain kinds of soil conditions in certain parts of the country, they show up more often than others. But this is more of a thing that it's, a, it's kind of an easy question to ask, if you will. It's like it's a concept that is sort of uh, kind of by itself out there. It's sort of this way of imagining it and it forces you to think about not only loads but soils and the concrete and the rebar and uh, a whole thing, a bunch of things all at once and this idea of the relationship between making a decision between uh, a cheaper version floating up high, closer to grade, a more expensive version of going all the way down to bedrock. So this is one of those things where they ask these kinds of questions about mat and wraps way more often than would make sense for the amount of times that it happens out in the world. And we'll see a couple of other examples of that as we go along. All right, here's another uh, simple one. This one uh, is very simple, but has a potential little um, uh, trick in it that is uh, obvious once you see it, um, but uh, throws people off all the time, and so it's kind of worth running through it. So, okay, here, uh, number four, we have a three-story building with no basement, slab on grade, has a column spacing of 30 by 30, and an assumed live load of 80 PSF uh, for the floor and 30 PSF for the roof. If the dead load for both floor and roof is 20 PSF and the footing below one of the internal columns is five by five, what is the bearing capacity? Like what do we need to have in the soil? Um, what bearing capacity do we need to have in that soil in order to make this be a safe building? And uh, like a lot of these kinds of questions, you'll see, it'll say ignore the lateral lows or ignore other things. And this is again, this is sort of their modus operandi. Like what they want to do is they want you to sort of strip away all the side kind of thinking that you would normally be putting into something like this and just focus on one or two small issues just to make sure that you're capturing kind of what's going on in that sense. So here we have a little framing plan uh, and so we have a column spacing, we have the 30 by 30s, so there's the 30 and there's the 30. Uh, and here's the internal column, uh, so the uh, attributable area uh, that's gonna go to that column footing is gonna be halfway between uh, that 30 span, halfway between this 30 span, and then halfway that 30 span, uh, and again the other side. So you're gonna get a 30 by 30 in there. Uh, that's sort of obvious, but it's worth mentioning because uh, sometimes you'll see a question like this and it seems very simple and straightforward in that same way, but then when you actually look at the way it's framed, uh, one of these numbers will be different. So 
kind of the point of saying this is make sure you actually look at the, at the, when they give you a framing plan, look at the framing plan and you'll find that every once in a while it'll be set up in a way where it's not quite as simple. But generally it'll be, if you have a 30 by 30 uh, column spacing, then the attributable area will be that same 30 by 30. Uh, so then we start looking at the loads. We mentioned that the roof load has a, uh, uh, a live load. Um, sorry, let's see, a live load of uh, 30 plus a dead load of 20. Uh, so therefore, that's going to be equal to 50. The floor loads have a live load of 80 uh, plus a dead load of 20, so that's going to be equal to 100. Um, I've obviously used numbers that add up to easy ones to calculate. Uh, it's, 80 is not necessarily a typical number. Um, it's not, not a bad number for a live load, but um, often it would be 100. Uh, for certain residential things, you might see it all the way down to 40 or 50. Um, but uh, you know, 100 would probably be a little more typical for a commercial. Uh, but uh, this gives you just sort of easy way to calculate. So for the uh, uh, roof loads, we're going to use 50. For the floor loads, we're going to use 100. Um, so we start talking about the, the roof load. We've got uh, 30 by 30. Uh, so that's going to be uh, um, the, the area. And that's going to be times that 50, uh, <coughs> excuse me, 50 uh, pounds per foot. Um, so we got pounds, sorry, it's hard to do this with this little device, um, pounds per foot. I'm probably not going to do that on the other ones because it keeps clicking me out. Uh, and you multiply that out and that gives us 45,000 pounds. And then on the third floor, we have the same 30 by 30. And then we're going to multiply that times the 100 pounds per foot. And that's going to give us 90,000. And then on the second floor, you see where this is going. It's going to give us another 90,000. And then on the first floor, nothing. This is the little trick part that often throws people off. Uh, because this is a slab on grade building, there is no structure at the first floor. There is no beam and column and all of that that is being held up. Uh, the first floor is bearing directly onto the soil. So technically, if you want to be really technical about it, that five by five footing would actually have a little bit more load coming down directly from the, the uh, floor directly above it. But in the way that the exam would think about it, it would just say, we're neglecting that, we're just going to simplify. Uh, so part of the thing here is that you understand that there's a difference between slab on grade and the structure up above. Um, and of course, everybody would understand that as a difference, but you get sort of caught up in sort of adding the floors together and often people will make that mistake. So we add those together and we just get uh, 225, I believe. Um, and that's our total uh, pound load coming down uh, based on these uh, uh, code requirements of the 80 and the 20 and the uh, 30 and the 20. Uh, and then we have the five by five uh, footing underneath that uh, internal column. And so that five by five footing is 25 square feet. So we divide uh, that by the 25 uh, square feet uh, and that's going to equal 
uh, right there at 9,000 uh, PSF. And so that is what the uh, soil capacity is going to have to be in order to have this work. So I have to give you a little, uh, little heads up here. When I actually did this, um, I actually wrote this as six by six, but for some reason I had a little typo uh, and I made it five by five. So that's why I've, I've just left it at five by five because I didn't want to send a change out and do, make it more complicated. And it works at, the, at D. Uh, so in this case, D is the answer. But if it was six by six, which would be more typical, because 9,000 is actually quite, quite a lot of uh, PSF. Um, and for it to be 9,000, that would really be saying that it's probably bedrock of some kind, some sort of rock. Um, if you do it at six by six, it comes out to about 6,000, which puts it in 7,000, which you can get 7,000 uh, from a couple of different uh, uh, soil sources. Um, so that's why it, uh, it seems a little odd. It's because I actually had meant it to be six by six. Um, but it still works at five by five in terms of uh, going through the process. So you'll find uh, the, the sort of soil capacity loads, they'll range between, uh, the, probably the smallest load you'll ever find on the exam would be something like maybe 1,000 or 1,500 PSF. Um, that would be pretty not great soil and would only be really usable either in like the mat or raft like we just talked about. Uh, or in something of a, a fairly small scale type structure. Anything that was a bigger scale structure almost assuredly would be at least 2,000 PSF and probably three or even four or 5,000 PSF for what you'd be looking for uh, in that soil. And if you didn't have it at uh, a place that was easy to get to, then that's gonna mean that you're probably gonna reach down farther into that soil until you find it. That's why you're gonna use those soil bo boring reports in order to figure out how far down that foundation would actually go in order to get a reasonable uh, pounds per square foot capacity of the soil to be able to push back so that the building doesn't sink into the ground. So again, fairly simple idea just has that one little uh, trick on it that you have to remember that slab on grade has a different uh, relationship to these numbers. Another framing plan uh, concept here. So when choosing a framing plan, number five here, uh, for a steel structure, the engineer offers four different potential layouts. Since you are concerned about efficiency and economical use of material, uh, which, uh, which would you choose? Uh, assume it's an office and sort of typical corrugated steel decking. So let's look at B and D first. Uh, so we look down here at B uh, and we have a 60 foot dimension here uh, and then 40 foot dimension there. So we have beams at 60 foot spans and girders at 40 foot spans. Well, that would be really great. That would be awesome because there'd be no columns uh, and it would be uh, easy to put a building in around there, but it's not gonna be economical and efficient. Uh, typical sort of sweet spot of steel framing is gonna be in the kind of 30 foot to 40 foot. Uh, sometimes you'll see people say 35 foot to 45 foot. Um, so you kind of get the idea 35 to 40 uh, is sort of the, that range of um, column spacing is gonna work very efficiently with steel. As soon as I get down to like 20 foot spacing, there may be reasons why I do 20 foot. There's, there's all kinds of reasons why we, we don't do things in the most efficient way. Uh, but when we uh, get down to like 20 foot spacings, uh, it's just a little less efficient. The amount of steel I need for the columns and all the uh, footings that that requires 
uh, it's just the numbers when, they, when you work them out make that uh, less efficient. So that's one of the issues that's striking against D. Uh, so uh, not enough columns in B and probably too many columns uh, too close set together in D. Uh, the other issue is it's uh, for an office occupancy, it would just be not great to have columns every 20 feet. It's hard to fit the offices in in that scenario. Uh, the other issue with D is um, steel decking. We're imagining that there's steel decking spanning across from beam to beam, and the shortest dimension I have here is 20 feet. And steel decking generally, you can make it span different dimensions, but generally, especially in terms of the exam, it's going to be in probably the 6 to 10 foot range. It might be up to 12 or even 15 feet in certain scenarios. It might be down to 3 or 4 feet spacing uh, in other scenarios. But it's kind of, the, again, the sweet spot is going to be around 6 to 10, maybe 12 feet. Uh, and so uh, it would be very expensive corrugated decking that would span 20 full feet in uh, this whole dimension. So uh, B and D are not right. So then the question is, all right, which is it between A and C? And uh, the trick on this is A and C are very similar uh, except switched, you know, sort of polar opposites, if you will, of each other. So we look at C, I have beams here uh, on going spanning from girder to girder, and then I have a girder there and a girder there. Uh, so if you think about each beam loading, the area for each beam that it's carrying is roughly something like that, and the area for each uh, girder it's carrying is actually pretty darn massive, right? because I have short beams and I have long girders. So what that's going to mean is I'm going to have uh, a, a girder that's going to be very, very deep and then a beam that's coming into it that's going to be a little tiny beam uh, that comes into it. There's going to be a big discrepancy between those two. And it's going to be a very expensive girder system. You're, you're putting huge amounts of money into the girders, but also you're making it more difficult, less economical for moving uh, ductwork around the building, for having space for all those other elements that, that you want to have up in the interstitial space. Uh, and so it's just considered a not smart way to go. Uh, the exam will always lean towards, unless it gives you a reason to go against this, it will always lean towards the idea of having a nice long beam and a short girder. So that that way, the depth of those uh, steel members, those presumably wide flanges, end up sort of equalizing. So you'll end up having a situation where I've got my girder uh, and my beam coming into it is probably pretty close to that same depth. Uh, that's going to be more efficient for all the interstitial stuff like the ductwork, but it's also going to be a more efficient in just straight out uh, weight of the, of the steel and the sort of economy of the, of the process. And so this is allowing us to get sort of the best of both worlds uh, uh, as best as we can out of the four choices that we've got. Hopefully that makes sense. Uh, and then um, the, the spanning of the uh, de decking on that is uh, kind of below 10, so easily works uh, in the typical steel decking spanning. All right. Let's look at number six. So for design reasons, you do not want to use shear walls in the building because you need larger windows than the shear wall could easily accommodate. 
So instead, you would probably employ, and we have a couple different answers, massively hinged columns, braced frames, moment-resisting frames, Virgil frames. Uh, so looking at kind of a diagram of a sort of 3D frame happening here, the, the, the typical, uh, you would have uh, uh, shear walls, um, and those shear walls would be put in sort of logical locations. And the reason for that is if we don't have any shear walls in that big mix of, of uh, framing members, and we get one of these uh, forces pushing against it, uh, there's nothing, there's no diagonal forces, so it just pushes it over. It becomes, goes from being a square to being uh, a rhombus, right? It, it uh, makes it a parallelogram. Uh, and so if you had a, a force against the, one of these side walls, wind force or uh, shaking force of some kind, uh, it would just sort of knock this thing over. So the typical way that this gets done is you end up building uh, these shear walls in very specific locations, uh, which are big solid mass uh, of walls, often concrete or block, reinforced block or uh, something along those lines. And I would have, uh, I, I wouldn't just put one in, I would probably try to balance it so that the shear going in that direction um, as the wind is coming up uh, this way, it's stopping this force from knocking this thing over. I don't need to have it everywhere, I just need to have enough there that the rest of the, uh, of the frame can just sort of lean against that and it's, it's gonna keep it stiff. Uh, I'm also probably gonna want to have it be balanced in the floor plan so that I don't have a torsion starting to happen where it's stiffer on one side of the building than it is on the other. So if I have this one, I probably have another one on this other side. But equally, uh, I also need to worry about going this way. So I'd probably have another uh, shear going the opposite direction in order to, to stiffen the building in that way. And again, it, I would try to do it in a balanced way. So I have equal uh, kind of around the center of gravity of the, of the structure. Uh, it's sort of uh, even and, and symmetrical. Uh, and if I have that situation, so let's say I've got them uh, here as well, like I said, for kind of some symmetry purposes, well, clearly that's gonna make it really hard to put uh, a window uh, right into that spot. Now, I can put a window into a shear wall, I just can't put a big window into a shear wall. So the question is, all right, what if I, for design reasons, really want to have those big windows? What are my various choices? So. Uh, the shear wall kind of is out because we just said we can't fit uh, great big windows in there easily. Uh, so what are my other choices? Well, I could use uh, what's uh, referred to uh, as a braced frame. So I could use that. That's actually a pretty good answer. Uh, and in that situation, I might be thinking of big diagonals. Uh, it could be like that. It could be, oops. Um, well, Sorry, you want to get rid of it? Okay, one more. All right, there we go. Uh, or it could be uh, that you know you do them as smaller ones that all stack up, uh, and I would do that in a few of the bays. Uh, and those uh, um, braced frames are actually pretty useful, uh, and they can uh, do all kinds of great things. You might be thinking of the uh, Hancock Building uh, in Chicago, uh, or maybe you might be thinking of the Pompidou Center in Paris. The Pompidou Center in Paris, because they were trying to uh, show up, uh, make it, like really make it sort of show all the structure, they actually have those braced frames in every bay. 
Uh, and that's actually not necessary. Uh, you only need it in probably about 20% of the bays, roughly. Uh, but they did it all over the place just for the f sort of fun of it. Um, but you only really need it in some. But you know, if we're really kind of being serious about putting big windows in, uh, this is also kind of problematic, right? I can't really easily fit a big window with that big diagonal steel member uh, running through that, that space. So yeah, it sort of answers the thing, but it specifically talks about big windows. And while I don't have any problem personally with having a window with structural members going by, it's kind of a fun thing to do. Eh, that's not really what it's talking about. That's too designy for this, uh, this kind of conversation. Uh, so then, all right, how do we do it without uh, putting that in there? And then the obvious answer here is uh, with moment-resisting frames. So what that's saying is, instead of these, all of these points, like this point right there, being considered a hinge point, um, instead, of, uh, instead of that kind of uh, connection, very simple bolted connection that uh, can actually provide quite a bit of movement in there, a moment resisting frame is saying, I'm essentially welding all of these connections and I'm making those connections uh, so that they are not hinging, they are not uh, uh, turning and it's making the actual frame, making it, that's the thing, the, those connections where the beams and columns and girders all come together is what's gonna stop uh, this force from pushing that frame over and it's going to do it in such a way that I can still get a great big window right in that spot. Uh, so that kind of frame uh, is the, the moment resisting frame is definitely the sort of answer that they would be looking for. Uh, typically that would be a welded frame, uh, though you can actually do it by bolts, but when you get into the details of how you do it with bolts, it takes a whole lot of bolts. Uh, and so it's actually usually easier just to, to weld it because it's hard to fit all those bolts in there because you're trying to make a very, very stiff connection so that it just can't uh, sort of tilt over in that same way. Uh, massively hinged um, is just something I made up. Uh, so that's definitely not it. Uh, the answer would be moment resisting. And Virendil, um, this is one of my favorite words that shows up on the exam occasionally. Uh, and so I bring it up a lot because it's something that you probably haven't dealt with. Um, a Virendil is a truss type and it's a fake truss type. It's a truss that uh, uses moment uh, resisting uh, frames. So it's instead of having any diagonals in it, it just uses those same moment frames at all those points. And therefore it's kind of acts like a bridge uh, truss, but it's not, it's called a truss, but it's not actually a truss because it doesn't have the diagonal forces in it, but it has this weird name. And again, that's one of those things. There's certain words that show up over and over again because they are sort of a, they're a known thing, like a mat foundation, a Virendil truss, the, a whole bunch of those kinds of ideas. And so when you see those in guidebooks or in these kinds of lectures, uh, like make sure you sort of catch on to those because the reason, there are reasons that people are, are talking about those and that's because they get used a lot in these kinds of discussions. All right, on to number seven. All right, we're stepping back to some of the statics discussions here. Uh, draw the shear and moment diagram for the beam shown. So the beam shown is over, over here. I've got uh, two reactions, reaction one, reaction two. I've got a uniform load across the entire, uh, across the entire beam. Uh, I've got uh, a 
singular load, a point load coming down there, that's seven kips. Um, I've got some numbers on here, but I actually don't really care about the numbers. You don't really need the numbers to be able to draw uh, the shear uh, and moment diagrams. Uh, before we jump into doing it, I'm going to break these out into two separate uh, elements here. So here's an example of just uh, a typical beam with uh, one single point load on it. When we do the shear diagram, what that's going to be, we have this load going up and then that load going down and then the other load going back up again. So from a shear standpoint, that's, that's going to get us that flat line across, that big drop down, the flat line across, and then back up to zero. And remember, it's always got to get back to zero if it's in equilibrium. Uh, so then comes the moment diagram. And there's a bunch of different ways that you can think about this. For me, when you're talking about diagrams, I actually prefer to think of it graphically. So the way that I think about it, uh, like I say, there's about three different ways to do this, but the way that I think about it is that the value that's on the shear diagram at a given point, so let's say a few feet off here, let's say we're talking about a point right through, through there, so a point a few feet off that edge, uh, the value that, is, that this diagram is expressing of the shear diagram is going to tell you the slope of the moment diagram. So the value is going to tell you the slope of the moment diagram. Well, you notice here on this uh, shear diagram that that's a flat line going across both at the upper and the lower level. Uh, so that flat line uh, means that the value of the shear diagram is a consistent even number uh, in these two different scenarios, which means that the slope is going to be a consistent slope in those two. So when I have a point load like this, it leads to a sort of boxy looking shear diagram, which leads to a little peaked roof of a uh, moment diagram. If I have a uniform load, then what I have is I have that reaction going up, and then I have a consistent load going down. So I have a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit down, right? And so that's going to uh, mean that I am uh, going to end up with that diagonal line uh, as it goes down, and then it comes back up to cut back to that zero. So I get these triangular shapes when I have a uniform load like this. Well, like we said, if we take at any given point the value of the uh, shear diagram, the value at that point of the shear diagram, it's going to tell you the slope at that point of the shear diagram. So here, in this location right there, we have a fairly small value, but it's a positive value. So we know it's going upward. Uh, here, at the very edge, we have uh, a large, larger value, and it's also positive, so we know it's steeper. So this is going steeply up, and then eventually nodding off to zero, because at the zero point, it's going to be flat across. And then now, it's because it's on the negative side of that line, it's going to be going back down in the same format. So if I have a uniform load, I've got triangles and then curves. If I have a point load, I've got uh, rectilinear boxes and then these angle lines for the moment connections, moment uh, diagrams. 
So, okay, we come over to here, uh, and what does that mean for our actual drawing of uh, an actual shear diagram? Uh, and we're gonna end up doing something like going up, sloping down, a big drop, continuing the slope, that's probably not quite steep enough, and then back up. So that's gonna be our shear diagram. So we have a positive value that starts higher and gets lower to eventually where the, uh, that point goes. And then we have a negative value that starts sort of as a low slope and becomes a bigger slope. So that's gonna do, we know that there's an important thing happening right through there. So it's gonna be something like, doesn't go to flat, it's still angling up. And this one is also doesn't go to zero, so it's gonna be still angling down. This one's gonna be a little tricky here. Sorry, that's supposed to, I'm gonna <laughs> cut it there. That's supposed to be an arc. Uh, but it's still sloping upwards by the time it gets there. So that's how this is gonna work. Uh, you very quickly uh, just map out how the, uh, the, the uh, loads are loading, what the shear diagram is gonna do, and from that graphically, you can just visually see what the shape is going to be. I know it's gonna be curved because of that uniform load. Um, these would meet each other. They, they, Sorry, it's a little hard to make it do that. Um, but uh, those would actually connect at that spot. Um, and uh, then it'll find its way in negative. It's sort of starting off low slope and then steepening up as it gets down to the end, end side. One of the things to remember about this is these things are totally just fictions of our imaginations. Uh, these are structural engineers, how they think about numbers and like there is nothing sacred about any of this. We just happen to be looking at it from one side. We could look at it from the other side. We could decide that the reactions go down instead of up. We could decide like these are just ways of thinking about it that help us to see things like where the moment is the highest, where the moment is zero, where the uh, uh, shear is the highest. Um, it's just a tool by which we use. There's nothing sacred about these things. They're just diagrams and you can flip them around and use them in all kinds of different ways. So I've shown beams because beams I think are easier for people to understand, but you can have very similar things on walls, on columns, on uh, you know, purlins, on any number of different pieces. Uh, and it's that same basic idea that you're just diagramming how the forces are working in order to be able to make decisions from uh, what you would need to know, like can I put a hole in the beam in this location? Uh, does it make sense or you know, just something else, to, does it need to be more robust at that spot? So this is the kind of tools that get shown. Uh, you won't have to do a bunch of these, but uh, you will probably, you won't actually draw them, you'll choose them typically. Although under 5.0 you may have to draw them. Uh, but uh, you will have to, to choose among them and if you can see that fact that uh, the point loads give you the boxy shear diagram and then the angled moment diagram and that the uniform loads give you the triangle shear load diagram and then the curving moment diagram. Once you see that uh, and you understand that sort of slope is uh, related to the, to the amount of the shear diagram, uh, slope of the uh, 
the moment diagram is related to the amount on the shear diagram at that point. Once you, once you sort of have that in your head, it's actually really easy to pick out the correct answers. All right, let's jump on. Number eight. So with, uh, with this, we're talking about an earthquake situation. Uh, and this is actually a take on one of the NCARB questions. Um, so you may feel like you've seen it, uh, and that was actually sort of purposeful because uh, it's a bit of a trick. So the actual one in the NCARB piece looks like this and has the same uh, arrows. And in that question on the NCARB mock exam, the uh, point that you are most worried about, so the question is in the elevation of a multi-story building subject to earthquake forces, uh, this elevation that's shown, which location is likely to be the biggest problem? So on the NCARB version of it, that spot right there, so the C one would be the correct answer. And the reason for this is once you start thinking about it, it totally makes sense, right? If I have an earthquake, what's it doing? It's shaking this building up, so it's shaking this thing back and forth. Well, that taller element is gonna shake in a different pattern than this big block at the bottom. This is still gonna shake, but it's gonna be much less of a shake than the, uh, this bigger, uh, taller piece, which is gonna start to have these, you know, much, uh, uh, much bigger, that's probably a little dramatic, um, but it's gonna have these much bigger sort of motions. Well, where's the, all the action happening? It's happening right at that inner corner, that re-entered corner. Uh, and so uh, it's flowing one way to the one side and then it's flowing the other way to the other side and there's a huge set of forces happening right in that spot. But that's not what I drew. What I drew was this one with these uh, very tall columns. You can see these are at least a, a double height story here compared to these other floors. And this big tall space with just these columns now, you know, maybe there's very stiff shear walls back farther in or something, but it's sort of clear that the way that it's drawn is that this is meant to say this is a thing that's happening on this elevation. There's something going on here. And what that, what that is, is it's an irregular massing. It means that I have a very heavy mass up above, uh, and not only that, but an irregular heavy mass up above, so it's going to have lots of different movement going on. And then I have this very... Um, uh, light, because it's just open columns, very light mass down at this bottom area. Uh, lots and lots and lots of uh, famous earthquake uh, failed buildings are failed because of this. So the answer is actually A, uh, because what happens is this big block, imagine if you have this thing, imagine it's a brick sitting on a bunch of pencils that you've stuck into the ground and then you start pushing the brick back and forth. You know, the brick isn't gonna fall apart, it's the pencils that are gonna to start to wobble and fall over. Uh, and so this area can very easily find that these columns start to get squinched uh, and it just all comes crashing down. So A is a huge big problem. C would be the next problem and is probably actually also a correct answer, uh, but uh, in my mind, I think A is a more correct answer. Uh, which is one of those things that the exam does quite often. Um, so you might think about, well, uh, you know, what could we do about this? Well, for one, we you know, 
don't do a light first floor like that or even up in the middle space. Keep it all consistent as much as you can when you're in an earthquake zone. Uh, and instead of having like this original one, this sort of kind of elevation L, what if we did it uh, where we had a tall building and we did a separate, sorry, a little off there. And we made these two separate buildings just from a structural standpoint, uh, but still made it so you could walk back and forth between them, right? Then this building is going to you know, move at its pace. This building is going to move at its pace and everything's great, right? So this is sort of one of those examples where if you saw a couple of different versions, there are things that, oh, maybe this, that you, it's not that you can't do this building, you just have to find a way to do this building. What do you think the issue is if you did it this way? Because this has its own problems, right? The issue on this one is this thing is rocking back and forth at a different uh, amount and a different pace than this lower structure is. And so the issue here is, do I get a spot right there where they're pounding each other, where one is uh, literally banging into uh, the other, uh, and I get a, a problem point there. So I would have to make sure that the, uh, the amount of distance that it was gonna be swinging as it went through uh, its various uh, motions set, set up by the uh, earthquake, would be within that distance so that it structurally wasn't damaging itself uh, in that process. Uh, it's sort of assumed that in an earthquake you're gonna have some damage. Like the, the, the point is not to have zero damage. The point is to have uh, as little as possible structural damage so that it's actually, the buildings are staying up and keeping people alive inside them. And you're not having a huge amount of uh, damage in, of uh, decorative elements that can cause other kinds of, uh, uh, you know, like big things falling on people or something like that. Um, so it's okay that these things might uh, bump into each other as long as what they are gonna break is something that's not gonna be a major structural aspect. So you can figure out how much space in between you would need uh, just by understanding the amplitude of the, of the movement. Okay. So number nine, after bringing in fill from an outside source prior to the foundation installation, what test would be appropriate? So we have a vein shear test, we have the proctor test, the cylinder test, and slump test. Well, we've already talked about the slump and cylinder test. These are concrete tests, so it's definitely not either of those, and that's these guys down here. There's the slump and the cylinders. Uh, the vein shear test is kind of an interesting one. It's uh, related to these issues, but not in the way that this question actually um, asked about. So the vein shear test is I have a stick, um, <laughs> it's probably it's more complicated than that, but I'm going to call it a stick, and it's got this sort of little cruciform shape down on the bottom, and I stick that thing down into the ground, and then I turn it. Uh, I try to s uh, spin it around. And if it spins very easily, that means there's very little lateral shear capacity in that soil. Well, that would be useful to know if you're using the soil as part of a way to stop uh, the building from sliding or the retaining wall from sliding or something along those lines. Uh, there's a lot of different uh, elements that would be important to know, but that's not what it was asking. What it was asking was, after bringing in fill from outside source prior to the foundation installation, what would be appropriate? Uh, the main thing we're talking about here is actually its compaction level and its ability to 
uh, uh, sort of withstand the load. So the Proctor test is this interesting thing where a realization got made that there's a strong relationship between the moisture content uh, of the soil and the ability for it to be compacted. And so the Proctor test allows that to uh, be sort of figured out um, that you can, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a very simple uh, test that, uh, that tests the, with a, a series of blows and tries, uh, but understands how much moisture is in that, that soil. And they do a whole, whole bunch of them from that particular kind of soil. And then they find the sort of, uh, the kind of best example. Uh, and then you get a readout that gives you a peak uh, compaction capacity. And then when you're in the field, you're sort of aiming for about 95% of that. So you'll often hear people talk about it's 90% uh, you know, Proctor test, uh, which means it's not quite compacted enough. Or it's 97% uh, Proctor, which means we've compacted even more than we really needed to. Because 95%, eh, you know, you're so close to 100 that you, this, there's enough going on in the soils. It's not like you're ever going to be perfect in the soil. Um, there's, there's factors of safety built in in all sorts of other ways. Uh, so Proctor test is this, this thing that's uh, figuring out about the compaction. It's related to the moisture content, but you're looking for what the peak compaction capacity is because you want to get it compacted so that nothing moves later. And in the field, you'll usually find that you're aiming for 95% of that peak. It's one of those terms that you'll, you'll see a lot. Okay, uh, number 10 here. Um, the, what this is asking is, is the top chord of this cantilever frame in tension or in compression? Um, just visually, we can probably tell that it's uh, in tension, right? Um, because I have a fairly heavy load coming down here uh, at that outside point and have a relatively light load comparatively to that heavy load pushing back in the other direction. Uh, so I'm pretty sure this thing is gonna be um, stretching out like that as it, uh, uh, as it, uh, as it gets loaded. Um, so I'm pretty sure it's in tension. But uh, just to check it, I can very easily do a moment around uh, this location. And what that does is it allows me to get rid of this sort of more complicated uh, load there uh, on that angle, as well as getting rid of any of the loads that are happening in this wall this way. Because again, that's, those are loads that are going at a zero distance. And so the moment, uh, calculating the moments across the whole thing, that set of moments are all going to get crossed off because they're all zero distance away. So the only two loads that I have uh, left are the 2K, the 5K, and then a response uh, up here uh, that's going in one of those two directions. Um, so if we actually did the sum of the moments, it's a fairly simple calculation. I probably won't bother going through it, but it, it would be uh, uh, a 10-foot uh, dimension times the 2KIP. Uh, a 10-foot uh, dimension times the 5-kip. One of those is um, going this way. The 2-kip is going this way. The 5-kip is going this way. Uh, so those are uh, going against each other. And then the question is, uh, which way is this other one going? And I'm going to assume that it's also going in that direction because I think it's probably in tension. Uh, and if we do quickly kind of calculate it out, you'd find that, in fact, yes, that is, uh, um, I think it's a three-kip uh, um, load at that point, um, although I'm 
not 100% sure about that if you get the calculation, but, uh, uh, but it's definitely in tension and you can do it very simply uh, by, that, uh, by choosing where that moment wants to get taken so you can get rid of all the complicated uh, parts. Uh, another way to do it is by a force diagram. Um, so you might start uh, at a starting point, go two kips over, uh, five kips down, the angle, uh, which is whatever it is, because it's just a diagram, so we know that it's uh, uh, associated uh, to the same length as these uh, forces. And then to close it off, I have this uh, coming back, and again, that's that force, and that's showing that it's going in the same direction and that it's in tension. Okay, let's move on to the next and last one. So this is one that comes straight out of uh, uh, the, the NCARB, uh, the current NCARB exam. Uh, I usually only do 10 for this, but um, when I was kind of glancing at it, I thought, oh, this is kind of a nice one. We'll just do it as a quick little bonus thing because uh, it, I think, gets at a couple of uh, useful concepts. So this question is, uh, buckling of a column can be reduced by which of the following? Check all that apply. Uh, so we look down through the uh, possible answers and we say, well, all right, increasing the size of the member. So the size of the member, that seems reasonable. Rotating the column, that sounds suspect to me. We'll come back to that one. Bracing the column, that's absolutely going to work. So I'm going to say increasing the size of the member, rota uh, bracing the column, those are both good answers. Changing the type of end restraints, that's also probably going to be very helpful. Um, reducing the length of the column, well, that's going to be hugely helpful. Uh, reducing the R, the radius of gyration. Actually, that one's sort of a little trick. It would actually, you would want to be increasing the R for that to be useful. Uh, so rotating the column, what's the problem with rotating the column? Um, in order to understand the process here, uh, like I have a, uh, let's say a wide flange type uh, column. It has one axis, axis going this way and has another axis going this way. Well, clearly, this is the strong axis, right? That's why we have beams that look like this, because it's going to be very hard for that to bow underneath the weight. If we actually put the beams this way, uh, it would be much easier for that to sag uh, in comparison, right? Well, the same thing is going to be true in columns, that I'm going to have a weak direction of loading and a sort of more robust direction of loading. So in order to figure out whether this column is meaningful, I, at base root, have to do both directions. I have to test both directions because I know I'm going to have to do the weak axis because that's where it's more likely to fail. Right? It, could, it could buckle in the weak way just as easily as it can buckle in the, the stronger way, so I have to test for that. So rotating the column it's, the rotation is already taken up in how I'm actually doing my calculations. So that doesn't really uh, answer us. Increasing the size of the member, that absolutely can make a big difference because now I'm making that whole thing stiffer and heavier um, and uh, I'm making it uh, deeper. And so that can be a, a very big advantage, but I would have to make it in both axes for that to be meaningful. Uh, Bracing the column, if I have this big long column and it's uh, braced at say the halfway point in one direction, if I can be clever about it and have it be braced so that the weak axis, axis 
is braced and the strong axis goes the whole way, well, that's effectively making the overall length of the column in the calculations half of what the other one was. So that's a huge difference. Uh, so bracing makes a, a, a big difference. And then we think about the end constraints. You probably remember these diagrams. Uh, if I have uh, this uh, end constraint where this is a pin joint, then this thing can bow out all the way from one pin to the other. But if this is actually a fixed joint, then it's not going to be able to do that. It's going to stay in a 90 degree relationship for the first um, uh, bit and it's going to do something more like that. And that reduces the effective length uh, of, uh, of the column. And so what that's telling us is that the end constraints, the end restraints, make a big difference on uh, what the capacity of this, uh, of this column is going to be in terms of its buckling. And remember that when you're talking about columns, you're always talking about uh, first, there are sort of three basic types of columns, right? I can have a very short and stubby column. I can have a uh, medium column. And then I can have, I'll do it over here, some really long, slender, ridiculous column, right? And when I'm trying to figure out what calculations I need to do, it's very clear that that short, stubby column is not going to buckle. Right? Uh, it's just, that's just never going to happen. Uh, it just can't, you know, you think of it like, think of a, like a brick as a column. It's, you know, it's just not going to buckle. It's, it might smash. So what you'd be concerned about is the actual capacity of the material itself. Uh, like that's where I would put all my energy in terms of a calculation. And then I look at this very tall slender column and you know, there's no way that tall, slender column is going to get to the point where the material itself is smashing, right? It's totally going to buckle before you get to that spot. Uh, it's going to bow out because there'll be some little bit of uh, lateral load somewhere, uh, some eccentricity, and it's going to push that thing out, and that's how it's going to fail. So that one, I'm going to be all about uh, looking at the modulus of elasticity and understanding its, uh, its ability to bounce back uh, and looking at the uh, buckling uh, numbers. Uh, calculations. This middle zone is the one that's sort of annoying, which is actually where a lot of actual architectural uh, projects are, because that one I can't be sure which situation it's going to be, so I have to actually do calculations for both of them. Uh, so I just like this one because it starts to talk about a lot of different issues. Uh, you'll see the KL over R, KL over R so um, the uh, ratio that has to do with this issue of the way that it's restrained is the K, the L is the length, the R is the radius of gyration, right? That simple uh, document, uh, simple formula allows you to start judging where and what of these uh, calculations you're going to need to actually do. And I think that brings us, uh, we're a couple minutes after seven, sorry about that, but uh, brings us to the end here. Uh, All right, <clears throat> we do have uh, two questions here. So uh, Cipriano asks, Going back to our first uh, question, what type of soils uh, would require the raft? Um, so the, there's a couple different ways to answer that. Um, and it's possible that it would be, say, like a, like a silty sand or uh, something that has a little bit of clay in it that you know there's going to be a little bit of movement and a little bit of uh, uh, settlement changes as water table uh, changes for whatever reason. 
Uh, and so the kind of lesser soils, um, uh, and you're going to float right on top of them. Um, the other issue, though, is that it's just a very differentiated, like sometimes you can go out onto a job site and, you know, you have a great big site and they'll do, you know, five or ten different uh, soil boring uh, tests at different locations. And they'll all be exactly the same. And you know that, all right, this is pretty, like this is going to be a very consistent set of soils. And then other times when you go and the soils are actually ranging uh, quite dramatically in different locations. It may have to do with uh, previous uh, uh, rivers or dunes or uh, underground uh, rivers or things, you know, all kinds of other factors can, can play into these things. Uh, and so there are times when you just don't know what you have. Um, like you, pretty, you have a pretty good idea, but you just can't be sure. So you might have actually pretty good soils, like good solid sands or gravels or something, uh, and you're going to float on top of that, but you're just worried that somewhere in there there's going to be this uh, less, lesser soil. Um, and so you want to be able to span across it. So the answer to that is it's going to be in, in those, uh, the, the soils that have the, the lower levels, but it's mostly about that kind of mixed soil scenario. And that often has to do with water table issues as well. Okay. Uh, so uh, the second question we have uh, here is from Charisma. She asks, is there a formula to know to come to the area multiplied by the load? And I think this goes back to the second slide maybe. Uh, the area by the load. Um, no, maybe. Uh, question four, she clarified there. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, um, there, there, are, there are a number of different formulas, so I, I don't, I'm actually going to not answer that one because I don't want to confuse you. There are a number of different formulas, but uh, this one, what we were looking at here, was actually just a very simple, straightforward thing that I have a certain quantity of load coming down, coming essentially straight down. Now, in actuality, when we're really doing a real building, there's a bunch of other things going on. There's bracing happening, there's lateral loads happening, but in this kind of question, it's really just talking about that straight load coming straight down, uh, and it's going to sit uh, that, so if that load, if we think of that load as a column sitting on a, on a footing uh, and the footing has a size, then the whole question here is can that entire load, that whole big load coming down, uh, uh, be held up by the soil that's down below it, right? So the, the question then is, well, what is the capacity of the soil? So if the soil is, say, 3,000 pounds per square foot, that means we can judge how many square feet we have times 3,000 pounds per square foot. And if that number is a bigger number than our total load, then we know that that 3,000 PSF soil can work. Uh, in this scenario, the way that we, that we did it, uh, those numbers, 3,000 wasn't anywhere near close. So it would have to be either a much bigger uh, footing or we'd have to go down to a better soil. Okay, so that's, uh, does anyone have any other questions? All right, so uh, thank you, Mike, of course, and uh, thanks to everybody who tuned in. Thanks, Mark. Uh, and for everyone who submitted their questions today. Uh, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast on uh, f uh, newly uh, licensed architects and how they pass the exam, um, 
visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register, uh, which is uh, right here. It's what you're looking at. That's going to be a really great conversation, I think. It's, yeah, uh, it's always good to talk to people about kind of what worked for them. You see a real range of different uh, ways of approaches. People using books, people using videos, people using like how did how did they focus? How did they get the work done? It's a it's a really good one to, to check in on. People who did it in seven days, and people who did it in seven years, and people <laughs> exactly. who did it in seven months, in seven weeks. Uh, it's quite a range, of course, as you say. So, um, so but at that, uh, and it'll be nice. You'll be able to uh, ask questions and share any answers with Mike for live feedback during the broadcast, uh, as well as all the other attendees. Um, so let's see here. Um, if you also, I should also mention, if you um, want to learn more about our, ARE, uh, our AIA ARE prep curriculum, you can visit blackspectacles.com, which you, where you can try out any of the free video courses. Um, and for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE, um, and if you're already an AIA member as a part of our partnership with the AIA, you can visit uh, bksp.es slash 923 webinar to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your AIA ARE prep membership. And finally, please hop over to iTunes right now and rate our podcast to let us know what you think uh, and share any suggestions you may have. I promise we read every word that you write and we'll use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.